This podcast is brought to you by the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University. Learn more about our work, including our taught postgraduate programmes in gender, conflict, transitional justice and human rights at www.transitionaljustice.ulster.ac.uk. Hello and good day to, uh, to all of our participants and attendees um, from across the world. Uh, my name is Catherine O'Rourke. I'm one of the co-organizers of this workshop along with Megan Campbell and Loveday Hodson. Um, and I also direct the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University, uh, which is hosting the workshop. Um, it falls to me to welcome you all very warmly uh, and to thank you so much for joining in our discussions, uh, particularly to our uh, distinguished panelists and participants. Um, in these introductory remarks, I'm going to speak briefly to our motivations and our objectives for convening the workshop uh, before handing over to Megan and Loveday for their introductory remarks. Um, so the workshop brings together key voices and stakeholders from around the world to consider how the leading instrument on women's equality, the UN Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, CEDAW, can best respect, protect and fulfill the rights of lesbian, bisexual and transgender women. Um, in addition to the CEDAW committee and the independent expert on SOGI, uh, we have participants from civil society from across Africa, Asia, the Americas and Europe, uh, all committed toward understanding better how international human rights law, particularly CEDAW, um, can be directed towards fuller equality. Um, in putting together this workshop, um, we had a, a number of mutually reinforcing objectives. Uh, first, we wish to provide a space and a forum for a focused discussion on the question of CEDAW and sexual orientation and gender identity, an opportunity to bring together conversations that had otherwise been happening in quite dispersed spaces. Further, um, the contributions from our civil society colleagues will focus quite directly on what it means in practice to have rights under CEDAW violated due to one's sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, also more positively, um, to see what might be done to enhance CEDAW compliance in this area. We therefore hope that the workshop will contribute to an evidence-based to lead to a better informed discussion on CEDAW and SOGI. Um, and to that end, in order to memorialize our discussions in this workshop uh, and to make a contribution to this evidence base, um, we will be producing a written report from our discussions over the next two days. And we hope to turn that around quite soon and to share that with everybody here, uh, with the CEDAW committee and indeed more widely um, with the human rights system. In saying that, we are of course mindful that there are many themes that aren't addressed or will inevitably be under addressed um, in this workshop, uh, rural women, girls, women with disabilities, um, several others. Um, so we therefore view this workshop as the start of a conversation that all of us will continue individually and through different combinations of participants to bring in other voices and themes. Um, linked to that, we see the workshop as an invaluable opportunity for providing the basis for informal and formal networks among civil society, academics and actors in the human rights system to continue to advance this area over the coming years. Ultimately, connected to all of these things, we hope that the workshop may ultimately provide some sort of tentative basis to a general recommendation on this theme from the CEDAW committee. Recognizing that this is a longer term goal, um, in the interim, we see real potential for a model general recommendation drafted by civil society, likewise to inform the work of the committee and the human rights system more broadly. Um, so I'll turn now to Megan. 
Thank you. Just to echo Catherine, thank you everyone for participating, for attending, for Zooming in, particularly for people who are either really early in the morning or really late at night. It's, we just appreciate everybody's generosity and giving their time to what we think is a really important uh, project and endeavor. So first glance, it might seem odd to think about CEDAW and sexual orientation and gender identity. Because on a plain reading of the text of CEDAW, um, there's not, it doesn't inspire a lot of confidence that it's really well placed to address the discrimination and inequalities experienced by lesbian, bisexual, trans, queer, or gender non-conforming women. The text makes no real reference to women's sexuality. There's a few off references to family planning, but but nothing really but much beyond that. Nor does it really talk much about uh, the diversity of women's sexuality or sexual experiences. And it would be probably fair to argue there's an implicit understanding of women as being cis women within CEDAW. And there have been lots of critiques over the years that the, the vision of a woman in CEDAW is really a white middle-class sort of global North woman. And of course, over the you know, 40 years since CEDAW came into, into force, there's been a lot of work to done to deconstruct that kind of maybe implicit vision of, of what it means to be a woman within CEDAW. In, in part, that the text reflects this understanding of, of women um, because it was drafted at a certain period of time and reflected the concerns of the drafters about what was the pressing issues of gender equality in the 1960s and 1970s. But the, you know, the great thing about all uh, kind of human rights treaties, but and particularly CETA, is that they are meant to endure over a long period of time, and they're written in a way as to be evolutionary and to be dynamic, and to be responsive and, and to new concerns about gender equality, and to be able to be reinterpreted for each generation and re-understood as to be able to address how does discrimination inequality impact on women's equal enjoyment of their fundamental freedoms and human rights, as it says in Article One. And the workshop today is really a response to that, that kind of uh, built-in evolutionary uh, mechanisms or tones to CEDAW. And the workshop today looks to take that step forward and think about how can CEDAW respond to discrimination against women in the context of sexual orientation and gender identity. And it's here that the work of the CEDAW committee in an, adopting an intersectional approach to interpreting CETA becomes so, so key and kind of points the way forward into the beginnings of thinking more coherently and comprehensively about sexual orientation and gender identity in CEDA. In general recommendation number 28, the CEDA committee held that women uh, inherently and inextricably experience intersectional discrimination. And this is a, such an exciting way to think about intersectional discrimination that women experience. So the committee was sort of saying, rather than looking at one ground in women in isolation of every other identity characteristic, it adopts what I've called a very fluid and expansive approach that really seeks to place women in context and understand how being a woman interacts with a wide range of not only identity characteristics that we recognize commonly in discrimination law, like race or age or disability, but also identity characteristics that are not commonly recognized in discrimination law, like poverty or illiteracy or prisoner status, and against cross-cutting experiences like climate change or conflict or post-conflict environments. So it really uses the concept of woman as a pivot point to understand a wide range of identities, experiences, and cross-cutting events that shape how women experience the world and how they experience discrimination inequalities. 
the CECIDA committee has really pioneered this exciting mandate and it's uniquely positioned to consider how sex, gender, identity, and sexual orientation are linked, interact, and contribute to disadvantaged treatment. On the kind of more positive side of the coin, it's also imperative to understand how sex, gender, identity, and sexual orientation to interact um, and how it can be as those, that interaction can be a springboard for rethinking and challenging long accepted essentialist categories and point the way forward for a more transformative approach to the realization of women's equality and human rights. And perhaps the greatest insight from the CEDAW committee that, that can be taken uh, forward in today's workshop is that this fluid and expansive approach to intersectionality is that lesbian, bisexual, trans, intersex, queer, gender non-conforming women are not a monolithic category in and of themselves, but there are convergences and divergences within sexual orientation, gender identity that need to be acknowledged, understood, taken into account, and in some cases celebrated. It's just really important that in respecting and protecting and fulfilling the equal rights of women in the context of sexual orientation and gender identity. It's crucial to think about how the commitment to equality in CEDA can respond to and take account of the intersectionality within sexual orientation and gender identity. And with that, I'll now turn it over to Loveday, who will talk a little bit more about some of the key themes that we're going to be looking at over the course of the next two days. Thank you, Megan. Um, I think the Megan's identification of the transformative approach to equality that the committee has adopted is really key to our uh, excitement and commitment about what there is what's on offer when we look at soji rights through the lens of the convention so the the committee the women's committee's focus on gender and women's experiences means its contribution to the fast moving global discussions on soji rights and its contribution to addressing in particular the marginalization of lesbian trans, gender variant and queer women is vitally important to the discussions that are taking place. The voices and experiences of women have at times, in fact frequently, have been left behind in discussions on soji rights. CEDAW in its inevitable foregrounding of women is uniquely positioned then to redress this balance and to shine a light on international human rights laws blind spots in this respect. And indeed, the committee has made a number of important interventions on soji rights and has perhaps made a more frequent contribution in this sphere than other UN human rights treaty bodies. But this opportunity, however, comes with challenges and with the recognition of soji rights comes a need to address difficult questions head on. And we're really grateful that you've all agreed to take on this challenge and pressing task and joined us today in thinking about these questions. Not least as an imperative to respond to the apparent textual limitations of CEDAW that Megan so coherently outlined. The committee has taken a number of important steps to recognise the intersectional nature of discrimination that women experience and in turn the gendered subject of the treaty. Over the course of this workshop over the next two afternoons here, uh, we will consider how this analytical approach might be further concretized and applied in the committee's practice. This is no easy task and there are no easy answers. 
while acknowledging gender diversity in broad terms orientates the committee's direction in important ways, there is considerable work to be done in understanding diverse women's experiences of discrimination and rights violations and the concrete obligations on state parties that flow from these. In what particular ways does CEDAW's general recognition of the discrimination that trans and gender variant women and girls face, for instance, translate into concrete obligations? In what ways can and should Article 5's call for states to take all appropriate measures to modify social and cultural patterns based on patriarchy and gender-based stereotypes be harnessed to further protect social rights? Medicalization and pathologization are issues that are ripe for discussion here. CEDAW has made a number of interventions with respect to criminalization of same-sex relationships, but what obligations does CEDAW place on states to protect relationships of care when they fall outside of state parties' legal frameworks? What does it mean, for instance, to recognize the relationship rights of women in same-sex relationships particularly when the global picture of formal relationship recognition is such a patchwork. In what ways can and might CEDAW's impressive analysis of gender-based violence against women extend to lesbian and trans women, for instance, and on migrant women seeking refuge from gender-based violence in particular? When we think about these questions, what are our shared priorities and aims? How do we answer these questions without creating further exclusions and marginalizations? As I said, there are a lot of questions for us to think about over the course of these workshops. Maintaining the intersectional approach and avoiding the lure of the analytically compelling, compelling that is in her deceptive simplicity, universal woman is an ongoing challenge. The question that inspires us today is that of how we can ensure that the impressive gains for women's rights that have been made under the convention are gains for all women and that no woman or girl is left behind. So I'm really looking forward to these discussions. We're delighted that you're here and I'm going to pass back to Catherine now so we can start the, the real conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks, Megan, and lovely um, for those compelling uh, comments. Um, so um, just before I proceed to our next speaker, um, a, a technical note um, for those of you who are attending, uh, who are watching the live stream, just to note that you have, um, you can uh, feel free to include your written comments or questions um, as the, as the, as we things proceed and, and we'll be, uh, we'll attempt to uh, address those in the, the Q&A session. So um, moving on then, um, I'm, it's my great pleasure and delight to welcome our uh, keynote speaker from the CEDAW committee, uh, Dr. Leah Nadaria. Um, uh, Leah very generously got back very quickly when we asked her to, to make this contribution and um, we're so grateful to have her. Uh, Lisa, um, Leah is from Georgia. She's a member of the CEDAW committee since 2015. Um, in that time, she's been a member of different working groups and task forces of the committee, um, including the working group on communications, uh, the Working Group on Inquiries, um, and the Task Force on Women in Conflict Prevention, Conflict and Post-Conflict Situations. Uh, Leah, I will hand over to you now and thank you again for, for joining us. Uh, thank you very much. I want to convey my warm greetings to the workshop participants and thank organizers Asia Pacific and UK universities for uh, enabling discussion on 
Sido and Sogi framework. I'll try to share a screen of my presentation. <clears throat> if it works. I'm not sure. Okay, uh, I, I'll continue with our presentation. <laughs> I'm so glad that CEDO committees practice uh, in recognizing how gender-based discrimination against women in text with and is determined by other assets of identity and the circumstances of disadvantage has positive evaluation. And that committee as a human rights treaty body is identified as making the most frequent references to sexual orientation and gender identity. CEDAW committee uh, as a treaty body has a broad human rights mandate relating to all forms of discrimination against women without any distinction. Through the language of equality embodied in the convention is based on comparison between uh, women and men, the committee has repeatedly insisted that the obligations contained in the convention express broader dimensions of inequality, including inequalities among women themselves. The committee has emphasized the intersectionality of all forms of discrimination and in pursuant of definition of equality had addressed the disproportionate burdens borne by rural women, women with disabilities, women with HIV, AIDS and LBTI women among others. CEDO uh, jurisprudence advanced in the past and I'm sure will advance in the future the doctrine that each person's self-defined gender identity is integral to their personality and is one of the, uh, the most fundamental aspects of self-determination, dignity and freedom. From early 90s, we can trace the evaluation of the language on human rights violations against lesbian, be trans and intersexed women and its connection to right to sexual orientation and gender identity with other substantive rights guaranteed under CEDO. Uh, under uh, different articles and issues, CEDO concluding observations include reference to sexual orientation and gender identity and are guiding member states, as stated in Article 2F CEDO Convention, to condemn discrimination against women in all its forms agree to pursue by all appropriate means and without delay a policy of eliminating discrimination against women and to end, uh, undertake uh, all appropriate measures, including legislation, 
to modify or abolish existing laws, regulations, customs, practices, which continue discrimination against women. Here are concluding observations that include a reference to sexual orientation and gender identity in the underlying positive aspects or concerns and the recommendations in tackling discrimination. For example, discrimination. Concluding observation, New Zealand, April 12th, uh, 1994, para 6-12. The government has passed a new Human Rights Act in 93 extending the ground of prohibited discrimination. Its grounds would now cover gender issues, including sexual orientation. Discrimination and assignment. Concluding observation, Sweden, April 2008, para 10. Committee welcomes the amendment of Swedish uh, Alliance Act in 2006, which provide for the granting of refugee status to persons claiming uh, fear of persecution on the grounds of gender and sexual orientation, and which will be of benefit to women refugees. Discrimination stereotypes. Concluding observations, Panama, 2010. The committee is gravely concerned that certain groups of women uh, in adding to being affected by gender stereotypes face multiple forms of discrimination and violence on the ground such as sexual orientation and gender identity. The committee also urges state party to transform its recognition of the problem of multiple forms of discrimination into an overall strategy for eliminating gender stereotypes related to women in general, and in particular to discrimination against women as specified in paragraph 22. Discrimination and violence. Concluding observations, Albania, uh, 2010 para uh, 1943. Committee recommends state party monitor the impact of gender inequality and anti-discrimination uh, legislation, uh, anti-discrimination legislation. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, identify inconsistencies and address them as appropriate with a view to ensuring that the implementation of legislation is uh, conductive to effective elimination of discrimination against women, especially women belonging to disadvantaged groups such as women discriminated on grounds of their sexual orientation and gender identity. State party monitor the impact of gender inequality. The committee calls on state parties to implement fully 
the law on protection from discrimination in relation to discrimination based on gender identity and sexual orientation by providing effective protection against discrimination and violence against women on such grounds. Uh, uh, criminalization of cons consensual same-sex relationship. Concluding observation, Uganda, uh, October 2010. Committee calls on state parties to decriminalize uh, homosexual behavior and uh, provide effective protection from violence, discrimination against women based on sexual orientation and gender identity, in particular through enactment of comprehensive anti-discrimination legislation covering inter alia uh, the prohibition of multiple forms of discrimination against women on all grounds, including grounds of sexual orientation and gender identity. To this end, committee urges state party to oppose the private member's proposal anti-homosexuality bill. And starting from 2010, CEDAW began uh, to regularly include sexual orientation and gender identity its general recommendations, particularly in comments on intersectionality and multiple forms of discrimination. First was general recommendation number 27 on older women and protection of their human rights. Uh, the discrimination expressed by older women is often multidimensional, with the age factor compounding other forms of discrimination based on gender, ethnic origin, disability, poetry levels, sexual orientation, and uh, gender identity, migrant status, marital family status, literacy, and other grounds. Older women who are members of minority ethnic indigenous group internally displaced or stateless often uh, experience a disproportionate degree of discrimination. General recommendation number 28 on the core obligations of state parties under article two of the convention on the elimination of all forms of discrimination, para 18. Intersectionality is a basic concept for understanding the scope of general obligation of state parties contained in Article 2. Discrimination of women based on sex and gender and explicitly linked with other factors that affect women such as race, ethnicity, religion or belief, health status, age, class, caste, sexual orientation and gender identity. State parties must legally recognize such intersecting forms of discrimination uh, and their compounded negative impact of women concerned and prohibit them. They also need to adopt, pursue policies and programs designed to eliminate such occurrences, including where appropriate temporary special measures 
in accordance with Article 4, Paragraph 1 of the Convention and General Recommendation Number 25. Uh, general recommendation uh, 33 on women's access to justice uh, uh, of 2015 and para 1 and 8 also cover uh, in, uh, LBTI rights. Right to access to justice is multidimensional. It encompasses justicability, availability, accessibility, good quality, accountability of justice system, and provision of remedies for victims. And noted that being lesbian, bisexual, transgender, or intersex are among intersecting factors that may make it difficult to gain access to justice. And finally, general recommendation 36 on right of girls and women on education, para 45, 46, state that bullying, harassment, threats against such students, follow students and teachers constitute barriers to their right to education. Limited education and cultural taboos are among the factors that prevent lesbian, bisexual, transgender, intersex students from achieving social mobility, increase their vulnerability to violence. Uh, and committee recommends state parties address discrimination against uh, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender women and girls and uh, intersex persons by ensuring that policies are in place to address the obstacles that impede their access to education. But the analysis of CEDAW committee's concluding observations show lacking of consistent approach in use of terminology, referring to LBTI women sometimes, LBTI women, uh, LBT women and intersex person, LBTI persons, as well as use of SOGI recommendations. Uh, standalone references are made to lesbian women, lesbian and bisexual women, uh, to same-sex union, civil union, cohabitation, partnership. Some recommendations uh, refer explicitly to transgender women and intersex persons. In past and the present language, sexual orientation and gender identity is the subject of the committee's long discussion. I want to know that general recommendations 27 and 28 were not adopted by consensus, but by vote. The committee was negatively affected by controversiality and discussions rose from the SOGI concept in international human rights system and social constructionist definition of gender that has been seriously contested and challenged in international human rights fora. Gender backlash encompasses activities pursued by various locally initiatives, which introduce 
discriminatory laws restricting freedom of expression, association, and peaceful assembly, including so-called anti-propaganda laws and firmly promote traditional over-equality. I want to note that still 69 countries have laws that criminalize private consensual uh, sexual relationships between persons of the same sex. Such laws typically prohibit either specific type of sexual activity or uh, an intimacy on sexual activity between persons of the same sex. However, they are also frequently used to penalize trans people regardless of their sexual orientation. Brunei, Islamic Republic of Iran, Mauritania, Saudi Arabia, Sudan and Yemen plus regions of Nigeria in Somalia are applying death penalty for consensual same-sex relation. Nevertheless, the committee constantly makes decisions about controversial issues when advancing women's human rights, but never regressing, and embodies continuous evolution. Each generation of experts bring forward their own experience, strategies, and uh, ideas. Otherwise, it would be impossible to promote women's uh, human rights and the uh, changing world. Uh, the committee continues to increase awareness of the SOGI concept and the state party's obligations toward LBTI women. Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Nadaria, for that um, very thoughtful and, and uh, comprehensive overview of um, the where the committee um, has addressed SOGI rights in terms of uh, concluding observations and general recommendations, noting also that point about um, general recommendations 27 and 28 being adopted by vote and not consensus. Um, and also a, a welcome commitment to, to never regressing um, on women's rights. So thank you so much. Um, and I'd also like to take this opportunity to acknowledge uh, your committee colleagues who are also uh, here uh, listening and attending. Um, so we have, uh, in addition to Dr. Nadaria, um, Madonna Rana is, is here, Hilary um, Gabedema and um, Marion Bethel are all here. So thank you so much um, to the committee for um, making the effort to, to listen to these discussions and particular thanks to you, um, Dr. Nadaria. Um, so it's now, uh, we will move to the contribution of the United Nations Independent Expert on Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. Um, very unfortunately, um, Victor was called into an urgent meeting of the Human Rights Council uh, with mandate holders um, and had to, and is unfortunately not able to join us in person today, though he does hope to uh, pop in tomorrow to our discussions. Um, he has, however, sent us uh, a wonderful uh, pre-recorded contribution um, that I'm going to share with you all now. Um, and uh, that'll be, once we have Victor's contribution, we'll then move into to a more open uh, discussion and Q&A. Okay, so just bear with me while we manage the technology. Dear colleagues, hello. 
I'm very grateful to the organizers of this conversation for the invitation to share with you a few ideas. I wish I could be there to participate more actively, but hopefully I can convey to you some of the work that my mandate is carrying out in relation to the issues that you will be talking about. And that will provide us with grounding for furthering the conversation in the future. As you know, I have the honor of being the independent expert on protection from violence and discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. The mandate is crafted with the idea of, on one hand, providing visibility to the manner in which violence and discrimination occurs in the lived experience of lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and gender diverse persons around the world. And on the other hand, to identify effective measures that can be adopted by states to address and eventually eradicate such forms of violence and discrimination. When starting to carry out this mandate, I understood that certain issues were important points of departure. One of them, which I've seen confirmed throughout my work, is that the expressions lesbian, gay, bisexual, or trans reflect only to a limited extent the enormous diversity that exists in humankind, and they may or may not correspond to manners and political identities under which people identify themselves. The other is that the very concepts upon which the mandate is created, sexual orientation and gender identity, necessitate significant discussion within international human rights law with the purpose of ensuring coherence, including coherence, in the doctrine and the jurisprudence of global and regional courts, commissions, and other bodies. That's part of the work that my mandate is hopefully contributing to, is that understanding of the manner in which these concepts are received in international human rights law and what are the, me the mechanisms that can provide us with processes and tools so as to promote cohesion and therefore a better understanding. And this is the first point that I wanted to share with you in this work of promoting a more active, perhaps richer, receptions of these concepts by different treaty bodies, special procedures, and, of course, the Universal Periodic Review as well. And I'm very pleased to know that in these panels, a colleague from the CEDO is going to share with us their significant wealth of experience in relation to this matter. The work of analysis of violence and discrimination has taken my mandate to the development 
of a research agenda that has included topics such as criminalization, depathologization, legal recognition of gender identity, and social inclusion. In each one of these thematic projects, there has always been a demand from feminist organizations to ensure that the analysis is intersectional, but also very importantly, that there should be a differentiated approach according to different populations and communities. This is particularly relevant in the case of communities and populations that are historically disadvantaged even within populations historically discriminated against because of sexual orientation and gender identity. I'm referring, for example, to lesbian and bisexual women. In relation to whose situation, very little data is gathered around the world, a lot less than what there is, for example, in relation to gay men. Some processes may reflect existing asymmetries of power even within the communities, but others may interact with processes such as the HIV AIDS programming prevalent in many sections and uh, latitudes in Africa, the Caribbean, Asia, Latin America, and Eastern Europe, where legal barriers may have made it very difficult to work on the basis of political identities, but allowed the creation of significant work on key populations of gay men and trans women, for example. So that example lets us know that we do know a lot about the health of gay men precisely because that those processes have been there over the last few decades. Other analyses of gender-based violence and discrimination were reflected in what was said to me in a recent submission to the mandate. And I quote, the submission said, gender is a social construct deeply embedded in society as a basis for making decisions on social, economic, and political inclusion and participation on one hand and on exclusion and marginalization on the other. End of quote. For the very few, gender identity will contribute to the creation of experiences of privilege. For others, it will lead to experiences of discrimination and violence. That is often the case for women and persons whose gender identity does not fit squarely within the male-female binary, or fits within it in a manner that does not correspond to the preconceptions attached to our understanding of sex characteristics. For these reasons, Gender-based analysis has been an indispensable tool in the development of jurisprudence dealing with cases of violence and discrimination. A broad understanding of gender is inclusive of gender-based discrimination impacting persons because of their real or perceived sexual orientation, gender identity, and or gender expression. And the interpretations issued by United Nations treaty bodies indeed suggest that these increasingly accept 
that gender-based analysis includes but transcends the male-female binary and requires an understanding of compounded discrimination. Lucido, for example, affirms that discrimination against women based on sex and or gender is often inextricably linked with and compounded by other factors that affect women, such as being lesbian, bisexual, or trans. The Committee on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights has established that the notion of the prohibited ground sex has evolved considerably to cover not only physiological characteristics, but also the social construction of gender stereotypes. Having analyzed the state failure to allow change of sex on official documents, the Human Rights Committee concluded that it was a form of discrimination because the government is failing to afford the author and similarly situated individuals equal protection under the law. Gender-based approaches are thus analytical tools in the consideration of root causes of violence and discrimination against lesbian, bisexual, and trans women, as well as other gender-diverse persons, inasmuch as departure from what are perceived as gender norms in a particular time and place are part of the causes of said violence and discrimination. Recent inter-American case law provides good examples of how gender-based analytical tools are applicable and pertinent to the analysis of violence against trans women. In Vicky Hernandez versus Honduras, a case that is currently pending of a judgment by the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, the commission found in the merits report that the victim's death occurred in a context of discrimination based on prejudice that included police violence against LGBT persons, especially trans women sex workers, as was the case with the victim. In looking at what the case and its context demonstrate, the Commission specially noted the violence based on prejudice towards the gender identity and gender expression of trans women and took into account that Vicky Hernandez and other trans women had essentially been forced into a cycle of violence by social exclusion leading to discrimination and criminalization. The Working Group Against Discrimination Against Women and Girls has similarly highlighted the dangers of ignoring gender identity and diversity. It has observed that women who do not conform to gender stereotypes, including some who may identify as lesbians, bisexual, and trans, are particularly vulnerable to discrimination, violence, and criminalization, and has noted, and I quote, in the 1990s queer theory also started using the term gender, challenging what is perceived as the binary understanding of gender, sex-gender dichotomy, and the heteronormative assumptions of some feminist approaches. The mandate has already identified amongst the circumstances that can unduly restrict freedom, the male-female binary system on the basis of the sex assigned at birth, and the idea that persons fall neatly and exclusively into that system. 
in the exploration of root causes of violence and discrimination based on gender identity, derived from the dictates of the resolution that gives me my mandate, I have gathered and systematized significant evidence about harrowing levels of violence against women, men, and gender diverse persons on the basis of their sexual orientation and gender identity. And I have concluded that like other forms of gender-based violence, this stemmed from gender norms and stereotypes that are enforced by unequal power dynamics. And it's further aggravated when they intersect with other structural inequalities resulting in poverty, homelessness, and lack of job opportunities or with other grounds for discrimination. I have particularly documented connected spirals of exclusion to which persons are subjected in connection with their gender identity. And I have noted that paradoxically, in the limited context in which data is gathered, there is abundance of proof that the situation continues. The University of Buenos Aires has produced research indicated that a trans woman is killed every six, 96 hours in Argentina. A survey by Stonewall with YouGov in Britain found that four in five LGBT plus people have experienced a hate crime or incident but did not report it to the police. The my mandate has structured analysis around violence that includes killings, torture, and cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment, arbitrary detention, and other violations to personal integrity, as well as systematic discrimination manifesting itself in health, education, employment, and housing sectors, as well as measures that promote sociocultural inclusion such as inclusive policies in relation to sports. Over time, United Nations human rights mechanisms have increasingly linked the phenomena of stereotype, social constructions, women oppression, and power. The Human Rights Committee has explicitly adopted gender-based frameworks in finding that the right to life must be respected and ensured without distinction of any kind, expressly forbidding distinction based on gender, acknowledging multiple and intersectional forms of discrimination, and these approaches place the victim's gender in the wider social context, acknowledging how social constructions of gender may mean that femicide and rape takes on a particularly egregious and discriminatory character or have complete, concrete implications for the analysis of cases brought to the consideration of treaty bodies. I would like to commend in that context the conversation that you are about to have today. It's obvious that all of these issues are inextricably connected. And I would invite that in your conversations, you also explore the connection with urgent agendas, such as 
current narratives that question the prevalence of the human rights of trans persons, the notion that gender identity is a concept received in international human rights law, and the connection with all of these systems of power and asymmetries of power with foundational causes such as colonialism. This is a work in which my mandate is very much embarking over the next two years and where I'm very much hoping to learn the result of your conversations, also to be able to bring them into the overview of the mandate of the independent expert. Again, thank you very much for this invitation, and I look forward to learning of the result of your work. Thank you very much. So, uh really rich contribution from the independent experts, uh, noting, starting by noting the, the under-documentation of um, many violations and experiences of uh, LBT and uh, non-gender normative women, um, noting also some promising developments from the inter-American system in this area um, throughout, I think noting the, the richness, potential richness of the term gender and also raising um, at the end a uh, call to action around urgent agendas. Um, so um, but to thank uh, all of our opening contributors, um, in particular Dr. Nadaria, who's here um, for, I think, giving us a wonderful opening to, to the next two days um, in, terms of, in terms of workshops, in terms of our discussions. Um, so this is an opportunity really to have a more open discussion. Uh, I'm going to encourage uh, the workshop participants to uh, speak up, uh, turn on your cameras, speak up, raise your hand. Um, and particularly, I think I'd like to invite if any of the, the CEDAW committee members who are here have any reflections or contributions. Um, certainly, we'd be very um, pleased to hear from you. So with with that, I think I might turn to my colleague, Megan, who I know has a couple of um, points that she'd like to make. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank uh, both uh, Leah and Victor for the really wonderful opening remarks. I have um, one question for Leah and then one question for one of our uh, participants, uh, Sandra Duffy. My first question for Leah is, how important is civil society in bringing forward issues of sexual orientation, gender identity, for the work of committee, like um, just how much do you need and rely on them to bring these issues forward? And my question uh, for Sandra is around, Victor mentioned, I'm only bringing Sandra into this because I know she's written a wonderful article in Modern Law Review discussing some of these issues. And Victor talked about how even the terminology around um, sexual orientation, gender identity can unwittingly replicate colonialist patterns. I'm wondering if you could uh, share some of your insights into how we even speak about these issues as a uh, in a way to ensure that we're not you know, replicating um, colonial patterns or, or global north dominance. Okay. Will I start? Please do. Sorry. Thank you so much. Okay. Um, uh, civil society is crucial for for life of treaty bodies. We rely on data collected by civil society. So uh, in uh, uh, and I should uh, say that uh, in respect to uh, 
to LBTI questions. And we are lucky that, uh, and it is obvious that we do not have the same quantity of quality data as in other areas uh, of human, uh, women's human rights. And it's a pity because uh, uh, I think, I think, uh, we should, uh, our partnership is based on mutual exchange, on, on, uh, on uh, sources, uh, on civil society. And uh, I hope that uh, uh, entire process of data collection and work with treaty bodies uh, will continue to evolve and develop and progress. Um, okay, uh, will I pick up next? Yeah, all right. Uh, thank you very much for the question, Megan. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, I think, quite an important point to, to make. Um, I'm not sure if I'm... There we go. <laughs> so, um, first of all, um, I would just like to respond to uh, Victor's contribution by saying um, it was incredibly important. Um, as a scholar of, uh, in particular, trans studies um, within law, uh, I found his call to action with regard to defending the rights um, of trans persons to be really important. And I'm really glad that gender identity is such a focus of, of this workshop as well. Um, with regard to the terms and the terminology we use and that are used within the UN itself, um, a lot of my research in this area has discovered that a lot of the terms that are used have historically been um, very westernized terms. So I use the term normative westernization. Um, it has gotten better in that we have moved away from the terminology of LGBT to SOGI um, within the past decade or so, um, SOGI being sexual orientation and gender identity. But even that retains um, a focus which which comes from a, a quite a Eurocentric, quite a Western viewpoint. So uh, in relation to your specific question, Megan, um, with regard to the terms, just taking the terms lesbian, bisexual and transgender, those can be seen as a particularly Westernized view of um, relationships and gender identity that um, do not always reflect the diversity and the, the nuances of uh, sexual and gendered identities that exist, especially in the global south. What um, is particularly noticeable, I suppose, in the context of women is that a lot of cultures have specific cultures of, of trans feminine persons or trans women um, or third gender persons with a feminine gender expression um, who, you know, suffer from both misogyny and trans misogyny, but are not necessarily included in what we would consider to be the Western definition of transgender, which is often seen as a binary transition from, you know, point A on the male or female binary to point B. Um, and I just think it's quite important that we make sure that uh, in order to reflect uh, an actually global outlook um, that we use language that is inclusive um, so that we recognize uh, different cultures, different socially and culturally located identities, and that we don't attempt to put everybody um, 
into a, a constricted and, and, and quite uh, westernized uh, normative box. Um, I can elaborate on any of that if, if you'd like me to, but... Um, Thanks. Thanks so much, Sandra. And um, we've a couple of can, um, hands up here. So um, Ksenia and Loveday have asked to come in. Hi, Ksenia. Hello. Uh, hi, uh, I'm Ksenia and uh, I work for Hilga World, which is a global LGBTI federation of organizations and specifically I worked a lot with SIDO uh, and even before when I was like a Russian human rights defender. So I have a lot of experience with SIDO and specifically uh, SOGI. I have a question to SIDO members, but before maybe I would just like to comment um, on the question regarding this terminology, because, you know, at ILGA, uh, ILGA world, we also, we are thinking about what terminology would be uh, the best taking into account that indeed sometimes we, um, leave behind uh, specific cultural slash gender identities, such as, for example, Hijra in India or Pakistan and other identities as well. But for me, uh, for me, it's also as a feminist and sectional feminist and as a lesbian activist, for me, the question is also that when we shift from LGBTI to Sojiesque, it means that we are losing these intersections between gender and sexuality specifically. And um, the LGBTI just by definition, it includes these intersections and specifically lesbian women. While when we are speaking about Sojiesque, it's, it, it's not like directly uh, per se includes gender aspects. So that's just like what I'm thinking about and uh, how we can better address these issues because uh, even though of course intersectionality is not only about identities but also systems of oppression, I think that uh, situations of lesbian women uh, should be also addressed and not uh, you know, lost in all these discussions. And regarding the cultural uh, identities, I know that because we work with different treaty bodies, I know that some of the committees, still not CEDA, but some of the committees, they did address specifically the situation of uh, Hijra. Uh, specifically in, I think, in Pakistan, and um, it also relates to what information civil society provides, of course, but I think that there is one of the gaps that SIDA maybe could address in the future, because indeed there are two-spirit uh, people, for example, in North America, there are Hijras in India and Pakistan, there are also Fafafine in Pacific, and so on and so forth. So that's kind of my uh, thoughts about the uh, terminology. And then the question to uh, see the committees. So uh, uh, Dr. Nadaraya indeed uh, shared that CEDA made the highest number of recommendations on LBTI. And that's true because we are also uh, analyzing and collecting this information since 2014. And we see that CEDA is the most active among all other treaty bodies in this field. But my question is um, what still remaining gaps you see in relation to uh, sexual orientation or gender identity or LBTI? So what, at least in theory, in the ideal world, uh, CEDA could do uh, more to advance the rights of LBTI women and persons. So that's my first question, what are still remaining gaps? And the second question is, uh, what are the impediments you face when you work uh, to advance the rights of LBTI 
women and persons because maybe human rights council we can see it as more political CEDA because it based its work on like treaty specific uh, convention we may think that it's more like less political and more legal and therefore one maybe some people think that uh, it affects to the last extent um, uh, you know by this all these political interventions and different positions but what is what is your opinion maybe it's like a composition of the committee maybe it's pressure from the states but what is the reasons why you have still like these um, limitations to advance more the rights of lbti persons and SOGS generally those are really wonderful and rich questions thank you so much um dr nadari i'd like to give you an opportunity to respond if you would like Yes, I will start from the last question. Uh, I think it's, uh, I, I would not say that SIDO uh, is uh, less political and more legal. SIDO has its political uh, heaviness, let's say so. Uh, and uh, sure, uh, we depend on composition of committee. Uh, usually, this is a main. Uh, what, what, uh, what, what, what is uh, we are working? Uh, each of us brings uh, our own aspirations. So it, it uh, has uh, immense uh, impact on uh, decisions we make. Um, uh, I think that, uh, first of all, there is a, a lack of discussion. And uh, I, I would say lack of academic discussion around the topic. Uh, I don't see enough briefings in this direction, enough interaction with academics, enough uh, communication with state parties who press us and there is always threat that, for example, uh, 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 that SOGI uh, concept uh, is a reason for withdrawal of Istanbul Convention. And uh, if we start pushing forward uh, uh, issues connected uh, with uh, SOGIEST and we'll be referring. Uh, uh, more frequently, it will, uh, it would, uh, it might cause uh, threat to withdraw from CEDO. So we are all the time under attack of uh, outside political pressure, uh, and it's uh, voiced inside of the committee. Though uh, I, I can say that it's not supported by uh, entire committee, but uh, there is a always hot debate, para after para. Uh, every, every other occasion, the same arguments arise, and it's a bit tedious uh, in, a, in a way uh, that we can't move on forward. And I think there should be a, uh, a greater link with academics, greater link with human rights uh, outside uh, that, that will strengthen committee to voice itself, to voice it and not be all the time traumatized and harassed by threat from outside the world. 
and uh, political decisions of uh, some uh, uh, very strong states. Uh, that, that's my personal view. So we need again to communicate better and this is matter of communication and it's matter of expansion of ideas, matter of communication with, uh, with uh, people on the ground. That's what treaty bodies are uh, really lacking uh, and hope that Zoom will allow us to swim more openly. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, um, uh, Dr. Daria. That was a uh, that important call to action, and likewise a call to us in the academy uh, to 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 engage more directly and specifically on this issue. Um, with that, I'm going to turn to my colleague Loveday. Uh, Loveday, would you like to contribute? Hi, th thanks, Catherine. Um, I just wanted to, I suppose, continue that discussion in some respects. It's been the important discussion that's been raised by Dr. Nedariah about the politicization of the committee's work. In particular, I wanted to go back to the question of consensus because you, you, um, we've touched on the important point that, that more recent um, general recommendations have not been adopted by consensus. That it, it, and, and I guess what we're in, indicating is a clear uh, division within the committee or certain areas um, where agreement can't be reached. And I wonder, I, 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 this is a question for the, any committee member here really, how, how, whether that sort of, I guess, coincides with your understanding of what the committee's function is to kind of face these divisions head on and to, you know, accept the sort of challenging nature of some of the questions that are being raised here. Um, so yeah, how, do, how does the lack of consensus figure in your understanding of what the committee is doing? Is it problematic or is it invigorating? I guess would be one way of phrasing the question. And we've had, if I can just follow that up with a, a question that I think touches on a similar area. We've had a question in the question and answers from an anonymous attendee um, about plurality um, with respect specifically here to Indian society and diff uh, diff um, different laws governing marriage. And so I suppose the, the question extends to where those divisions are based on religious differences, not least in cultural plurality. Does that add anything to the complexity of your task? So I don't know if that's manageable as a question, but those are certainly my, think, my, my own questions that I'm starting out with here. Thanks. Yes, this is this is Marion Bethel uh, speaking here, and I just like thank you very much um, for for that for these questions, and I'd like to support um, what uh, Leonardaria has put forward as some of the the issues that we that we face in the committee, which I think reflects the global um, the global context, and yes, I find it invigorating uh, in in regard to the question part of the question that was asked, as to how do we move forward. And I think the um, the alliances that we have now, the kind of, of workshop that we're we're engaged in in this very moment, I think all contribute to um, uh, us conceptualizing and imagining a way forward to um, seed off fully protecting the rights, human rights of the um, LBTI SOGI community. 
I think that is the, the, the goalpost. And, and as I've said, this particular kind of conversation with academics, NGOs, and um, other bodies, uh, including the special rapporteur, are, are crucial to, to, to how we uh, conceive of, of a way forward. And I think for, for, for my part, um, in terms of the, the convention itself and uh, it's, it's the binary of male-female that, 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 it, that it, it has set up, I think there are definitely ways forward. We, we have GRs that, that, that are used to interpret um, the different um, aspects or articles of the convention. And yes, um, some are done by vote, some are done by consensus. Those that are, are reached by consensus are, are clearly more, um, uh, clearly easier to, to, to use um, both internally and um, externally. And we do have the issue of GR 28, which interprets intersection, intersectionality and sexual orientation and gender identity. And um, there are difficulties moving forward when we, in terms of terminology, in terms of, of how gender itself, the word has evolved. Um, it, it, it remains to some extent um, not evolving as our understanding, in our understanding of it in the committee. And that is, in the, in the global in the global context but for my part I think that every single article of the convention ought to include the SOGI um, LBTI uh, um, uh, LBTI women every single article I think article 5 for example which deals with um, social and cultural attitudes ought to be used extensively to to to, to address this issue of, of SOGI and LBTI women in terms of um, stereotyping and and how how we in the community in different communities view that I think temporary special measures under article 7 is also crucial sorry um, article 4 temporary special measures ought to be um, um, uh, given to the LBTI SOGI community in order to advance the cause of human human rights for 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 for, for these women and um in, and, and as we look at the CSW article 7 i think is important for 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 um women to uh, lbti women to step forward to be to enabling an enabling environment for lbti women to have political um power political decision making and leadership um at at in all levels and so i think we in the cdoc committee can bring um, these concerns under each and every article and we must and we must do that it, it's it's not relegated just to health issues for the lbti community or or, or violence against the B lbti community but every single article has the opportunity to introduce um, and advance the human rights of, of the lbti sogi community under cedar and and that that is my position thank you Wonderful. Thank you so much, um, Ms. Patel, for coming in and for joining our discussions. Um, I, um, I'm conscious, mindful of time. We have formally reached the end of the session. So before we bring it to a full conclusion, I, I first would like to note just an interesting question that's come in through the uh, Q&A from our attendees, uh, which is, is something that I, I hope we'll get to through the course of the next, uh, the rest of the next two days. Um, even if the CEDAW committee states SOGI in the recommendations, the convention itself is based on a gender binary. Uh, do you think, uh, how do you think we could overcome this obstacle? Um, so of course, that's something that we're, we're trying to address in, in our full discussions. Um, and before I wrap up completely, I would just like to give um, Dr. Nadaria an opportunity for the final word before we, before we wrap up. 
Thank you very much. Uh, and my uh, final word uh, will be uh, uh, that Sido was born as uh, uh, as uh, uh, and was born based on gender binary, but it has evolved through its uh, uh, through the. the Development of concept of gender. Let's start first of all from this, uh, from from uh, uh, all constructivist movements around which Sido uh, uh, observed in it. So today, Sido is uh, enough uh, uh, articulative to address intersect intersectionality and. Uh, multidimensional differences uh, in so sexual orientation and gender identity. That's my understanding. Uh, the way uh, convention develops, there was no violence against women uh, when Sido was born. There was no article covering violence against women. But we have developed one of the best jurisprudence on violence against women. And I think GR35 is on a, in a high level. So uh, let's believe in evolution and progress. Wonderful, thank you so much. That is such a, I think such a fitting note on which to conclude um, this our opening uh, panel session. Uh, I just want to reiterate my thanks to Dr. Daria, to, to all the committee members who are here, um, and indeed to the independent expert who, uh, whilst not here in person, um, has made a really wonderful contribution uh, through his video. Um, so we're going to formally conclude this session now. Um, I'll invite you all to take a comfort break um, and to rejoin us at 3.30, where we'll move into our first uh, thematic panel, which is looking at relationships and families. Um, so thank you, and we'll, we'll see you soon. <laughs>